I hope you're strapped in and strapped on. What does modern anarchy mean? Are you playing and is it pleasurable to understand as many experiences as we can in this world? We could have open dialogues about these things without shame and like celebrate the beauty of what sex is and can be. Welcome to Sex Essentialist, Nicole. I'm super stoked to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh my gosh, of course. Um, for folks dialing in, today I am joined by Nicole of the Modern Anarchy podcast. Uh, in addition to podcast hosting, uh, Nicole is a sex educator and doctoral student in clinical psychology, training in, let me make sure I get this right, tell me if I'm wrong, psychedelic integration therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's a mix of all the things. So yes. I could explain more of it if you're curious. Yeah. I would love for you to kind of start things off um, just telling us a little bit about how you identify, whatever that means to you. Mm. Yeah. I am a cisgendered, white, queer woman, non-monogamous woman. That's an important piece too. Kinky. Mm -hmm. Definitely throw mm -hmm. that in there as well. <laughs> Um, I mean, I could rattle off so many things, rock climber, dancer, writer, therapist, educator, all the things, right? Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, so before I get into the weeds on all of those beautiful things that you just mentioned, because we certainly will, yeah. um, as you know, I love to have guests start us off <laughs> by sharing a fun or silly or embarrassing or like iconic Nicole, if you will, dating <laughs> slash relationship, whatever, uh, anecdote. So if you have one for us, we'd love yeah. to hear it. Yeah, I definitely – I mean – I would have – I have so many different stories I could share yeah. for that, right? It's like, which one am I picking from? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was thinking about it and I was thinking back to – gosh, I think I was in middle school at the okay. time, right? Like way, way, way back. And I remember going to my first dance, right? Whatever, homecoming, whatever we call it at that age. Yeah. And it was funny because I remember going to this dance and it was one of my first times and – flirting and you know I was very I was raised very Christian so I think in terms of context I was probably not as educated or aware about sexual things in general right so I think that's a running part of my story and a lot of the work that I do but yeah I was at this dance and I remember this boy started to flirt with me and started to grind on me which is like obviously a big no-no at a Christian event, right? Because you're supposed yeah. to leave room for Jesus. You're supposed to leave room for Jesus. <laughs> but <laughs> I remember him grinding on me and having this whole experience. And then I went home to my mother and I was like, mom, it was so weird. Like the boy, I think he had a screwdriver in his pocket. Like I could feel something hard. <laughs> I could feel something hard on my back and I don't know. Like he must have had a screwdriver in his pocket, which I just think is hilarious oh now. God. Like looking back, could you imagine oh. my mom? Like what do you <laughs> – What did she say? Did she I don't even it? recall. I think she probably explained. I don't even remember. I should call yeah. her up and honestly ask her. Like <laughs> how did you – as a mom, how did you get out of that situation? Yeah, that is – I mean, look, like, don't get me wrong. Oh. In my mind, if I were a parent, <laughs> I think, like, having the opportunity, like, a, an easy gateway into a sex conversation is totally. sort of like a gift. So you don't totally. have to force it. But totally. also, like, oh, man, that's that is a doozy. Because, <laughs> especially at that age, like, it's like a little too early mm -hmm. to get into 
Well, I mean, it depends, I guess. Like middle school, it's it's not it's not too early, but it's especially if you don't have the context built up, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't haven't had sex ed, then like jumping to boner really quickly is a <laughs> yeah. lot, a lot for you and a lot for your parents. Totally. <laughs> totally, it was just a screwdriver. I've never heard the word boner. It's just yeah. a screwdriver. <laughs> Also, screwdriver of all things. Like I know, I get. I guess that. I mean, yeah, shape and size sure makes sense, but like very specific. totally, totally. <laughs> I'm sure I'll call my mom after this podcast and see what she has to say about it. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know if she remembers because either totally. it's like no skin off her back or traumatic. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Um. Awesome. So, um. Again, you talked a little bit about um, how you identify, but I would love to hear um, your background and your journey and how you became engaged in sex ed, pursuing your, you know, doctoral degree, um, podcasting and and all of it. Let's get into it. How much time do you have? (laughs) That's the bigger question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well... So I would say that, yeah, I came from a very conservative Christian background, right? So mostly that was because I went to school in a Christian context, right? So I Mm. never even got sex ed. You know, I was thinking about when you were saying, what's a funny story? Like another one is that like I didn't learn how to put on a condom until later in my 20s, like had no idea. I was always monogamous and then, you know, only having one partner and using birth control and other methods. So I just had no idea. I never got the cucumber um, and the condom experience. So it's funny because I talk to my friends now and they're like, that's all I got. I got the cucumber. I'm like, you don't understand how lucky you are to that. Like that's wild to me. So when I think back to my sex ed, I – I've talked about this on my podcast. I released an episode talking about like purity culture and what wearing my purity ring again means to me. Yeah. Um, That's the whole story. Um, But yeah, I was taught in chapel that when I have sex with someone, it's like bringing two pieces of paper together with glue and you stick the pieces of paper together. And then once you break up and no longer have sex with that person, it's like ripping the papers apart. And so you lose parts of yourself. Yeah, totally. You lose parts of yourself in that process, which like now, you know, as someone, as a psychologist in training, I'm thinking about the amount of people in that auditorium who maybe had sexual assault trauma, other sort of experiences that literally were being told that they were damaged pieces of paper because they have had sexual experiences. And so that's kind of the framework I was taught. It was only abstinence and that's what happens if you have sex and you don't stay with that person, right? Um, my parents taught me a little bit more beyond that. You know, my mom was like, sex is what you give to your husband, you know, that language of like giving and having all of that tied up in there. Um, but yeah, I clearly didn't stay pure. I lost my virginity and cried about it. Like no other, I felt so deeply broken and unworthy and like no one would ever love me again. It was a really difficult time to go through. Um, for a first experience, right? Yeah. 
But then I was like, okay, I'm a born again virgin. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then went through a radical sexual assault in my college years that changed everything, right? Um, I started going to therapy to process that and some other things going on and then decided I wanted to volunteer as a sexual assault counselor. Mm. And so I started in Chicago, right? I started working with uh, we resilience now. They used to be called rape victim advocates at the time, mm-hmm. but I would go to the ER and do crisis counseling with people one on one, and I would sit in that state with them and support them. And the just the powerful gift that companionship is at those points when you're going through difficult times in your life like that, it radically changed everything for me. I thought I was going to do medicine and go down that path. But then I was like, wow, this this work is so profound when you're with people in these points of crisis and going on the healing journey. So then I was like, great, like let's become a psychologist. Let's do that. Now, the fun part of the story is I get to grad school and there's not a single class on sex. There's not a single class that really like hits how to work with clients of trauma like this. Yeah. In the APA uh, requirements for psychologists, a trauma class in general isn't even required. So that means – I know, right? You're just like, how? How? Luckily, my school is one of like only four or whatever in the country that are having that as part of the required curriculum. Maybe people take it as electives or whatnot, but it's it's not a part of the required training. So I immediately got frustrated, obviously, because now you're thinking about the level of clinicians out in the world that are supporting people, but also supporting people from their own center of experience. So there's no training on sex, right? So. Yeah. Let's think about someone who's kinky, right? Someone who's mm-hmm. non-monogamous. You put that into a context with a clinician who has no training on that background, all yeah. of their biases are going to flare up. Oh my God, they they have attachment issues. Oh my God, they're recreating trauma. You know, like all the yeah. things. Uh. And so that, you know, is 100% a big piece of, you know, why I started the podcast is needing more conversations about these things, needing to have open dialogue and you know, all this time my family, you know, they're still practicing Mormonism and down their own paths. And so I just – I wanted to create a space where we could have open dialogues about these things without shame and like celebrate yeah. the beauty of what sex is and can be and to hopefully bridge those gaps and create more conversations so that people can become aware of the biases and how they're impacting that on other people. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I mm-hmm. think – um you know, it holds true with uh, some of my own experiences and some of the other folks in in this space who have healed from their own experiences and seek to better the world and support others who have gone through the same. And I think, um, I mean, I I have never uh, sat in sort of a crisis response situation in supporting um, someone who's, you know, kind of freshly having experienced sexual assault. So, I mean, that's incredible, especially mm-hmm. given, um, of course, your own experience. I, I think that takes so much, like, courage and, and strength. Um, and, th- I mean, thank you on behalf of other survivors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, – yeah, I know it's it, – when I sought my therapist, I'm, I am <laughs> I talk about this all the time on the podcast, proud yeah. therapy goer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was um, – I was several years removed from my sexual assault experience, mm-hmm. which I share openly on the show as well, and yeah. had had not processed it properly. And I was both non-monogamous at the time and having um, – I mean, I, I have been kinky. I was more openly kinky at the time. I think, you know, when you are non-monogamous, it's con- you can 
oftentimes end up in circles where being kinky is a little bit easier to talk about um, more openly. But it was so important for me to find a therapist that maybe didn't have – I didn't end up partnering with a sex therapist, but – my therapist, I had to tell her, I was like, this is the reality of my day to day. Like, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about different partners because I have them. I'm going to talk yeah. to you about how I'm processing my physical form as opposed, in addition to my emotional being because I have this history with sex. I'm experiencing sex on a regular basis as a sexual person. Mm-hmm. Those things are both related and unrelated. Totally. I need someone who's going to be open to talking about those things. And she – She's a champ, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's new for her, but she does such a good job of mm. not new for her completely. I mean, she's she's yeah. a seasoned therapist, right? But like right. um given that it's not her specialty, like does such a good job of of understanding and dissecting, but it's hard to come by. And we need more people who take the time to create um opportunities for those conversations to be had in a safe and understanding place. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that she's been on board to support you and to expand yeah. her awareness so that she can support you. That's what therapists should be doing, yeah. right? My, yeah. My therapist too is I, – I don't think kinky or non-monogamous. Um, and I've I've had her since for the last like five years. So she's actually gone on that journey with me into these identities. So that's yeah. been a process of like co-learning together, which has been really beautiful. But yeah. I think another like piece that's important that I – I didn't mention in my journey that is so, so, so crucial and I think adds to this level of complexity of finding therapists who are supportive and understanding is how large of a role psychedelics have played Mm. in my healing. Huge, 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 huge. And so (laughs) equally finding a therapist who's not going to work from bias in that framework, right, is another piece of this as well. Yeah. No, that does seem like a big one. And of course, we mentioned it before as something that you're – I mean, sounds like interested in personally, but also from like a professional and research mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, let's get into that. I I have other questions too, but like yeah. you brought that up, and I wanna I wanna Go get into it. how you um, discovered psychedelics as a as a um, opportunity for healing and self exploration, mm-hmm. and how you think about it in a therapy context, you know, academic, professionally, and so on. Totally, totally. Mm, Yeah, those are kind of separate paths. So for me, my own healing journey with it, I mean, I mean, there's been so many different experiences that I've had on psychedelics that have been healing in a multitude of ways. Um, One of the biggest things for me that I can think of is the ability to tune into my body in a profound way that I had never Mm -hmm. had, right? Cannabis is a psychedelic as well. That's definitely a part of my relationship with cannabis is to be able to have that connection in the somatic experience. And I've had other experiences on psychedelics that I've talked about on my podcast before, like having breath orgasms. I mm. had no idea that was possible. And, yeah. and the level of attunement and like, and, and, you know, we talk about psychedelics as nonspecific amplifiers, right? And so in many ways that can amplify the cognitive experience that you're having you're having, right? But it can also amplify the somatic experience, especially depending on the type of psychedelic, you know, MDMA versus ketamine or other sorts of drugs that are going to produce different effects, you know. I yeah, breath orga- orgasms. You know, there's been times on psychedelics where I can like feel the graininess on a grape of like dirt that's still on it and I can just feel that. Like there's just such a heightened yeah. level that when I was able to go on to these medicines and have these experiences, I have the beautiful privilege of living in my studio apartment alone. And so 
all of the doors were locked. I had everything done for the day. You know, like the when we're talking about psychedelics, we always have to talk about the set and setting, right? That is a huge mm. component of what makes your experience. And so my set and setting were great. And I laid down and on the psychedelic was just feeling my body in such a way. And I was just processing to myself, you know, like I decided to lay down naked and have that full experience of opening up my body. And I, without even touching myself, was just asking the question of why does it still feel unsafe to be in my body? Like, Mm. why do I still feel such tension here? Like, no one's around. No one's going to get me. Like, what, what, what is this? And so being able to, like, have that moment of reflection and go into that space of, okay, like, let me relax. Like, let me try to relax and feel into my body. And then having that transform into that breath orgasm that I had was so, so profound. And Mm. I – you know, was extremely lucky that in my doctoral training, there was a site called Sauna Healing Collective that's in Chicago that does mm. ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and integration services, like I mentioned, yeah. you know, in my bio where, you know, clients who are experiencing these medicines out on their own and needing support with integrating the experiences that they're having, they're looking for a therapist who has that sort of background. They can come and work with us and have support in that way, the support that we all need, right? And so I've been able now to work in a co-therapy format where it'll be me and one of my supervisors supporting clients with complex trauma to go into a ketamine experience and mm. process, you know, and you, you it's, it's beautiful work and you see such a wide range of things that happen, you know, Sometimes you'll get that client who's been anxious and paranoid their whole life and have that ketamine experience where they feel calm for the first Mm. time in their life in such a profound way that they've never experienced before. And then we talk about that becoming a template for how they can be outside of that experience. But it's never the psychedelic alone. Like we talk about psychedelics as a tool or as a lubricant, you know, a nonspecific amplifier that brings things into the room. And then it's about that integration afterwards from that experience of how are we integrating this in your day-to-day life? What does that actually look like? And so that's why we talk about psychedelic integration therapy as joining those together. Mm. Yeah. All of that is so interesting to me. I mean, I I think – a few things. One, I th- breath orgasms are like <laughs> one of the things I think of like sex educator myth and legend. Obviously they exist, yeah. um, but like many types of relatively elusive orgasms, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> very cool, very fun. <laughs> I will say I haven't been able to achieve it yet on a uh, ordinary state of consciousness. So yeah. that is still a work in progress with me and my partners. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, but that's really cool. And, um, I feel like also important to acknowledge that like so many different types of pleasure are possible. I think we get in our heads about like the systemically, I don't know, like mainstream, uh, forms of pleasure or forms of orgasms that we forget that like, it's okay to explore and outside of those realms and also like not weird. I think so many people want to say, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. I had an orgasm that's different from what other people talk about as being a common orgasm experience. And it's like, 
pleasure is pleasure, baby. You know what I mean? Ooh, yeah. I mean, let's get into play. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that has been such a revolution for me is to see sex as play, right? Like yes. there's no right or wrong way. It doesn't have to be orgasm focused. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you playing and is it pleasurable? Great. You know yeah. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. No. And I love, I love the I feel like increased use of the word play, like when I'm in play, when we're playing, you know, and I I guess, again, it's always, it's always been part of the language for people who are, you know, like sex informed, kink informed, like sure, impact play, people know that phrase, but to understand what play as its own word can mean, um, Mm -hmm. I think is, yeah, really, really important. Um, And I know that, um, you know, the use of ketamine for for therapy is um, growing in popularity uh, as well. And I've heard from, you know, friends of mine, um, you know, overall really positive experiences. And I I think it's interesting to think about it in the context of sex and a connection to your body as well. Of course, um, it's not the only the only use you're seeing for it, too, but like having a gateway opened to true introspection when sometimes our conscious uninebriated mind is inhibited for one way or another from really getting familiar and comfortable with ourselves and in whatever capacity we really need to in order to kind of take another step towards growth with whatever kind of that looks like whatever the goal is um but it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting and sort of new concept to me personally at least as it pertains to like sex therapy. Mm. Yeah, MDMA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to orgasm on MDMA, sure, yeah, right? Yeah. But like just in general, the the somatic experience that you have on that. Mm. There was a lot of research in the past too of like using MDMA for couples therapy and other sorts of things. Mm. And a lot of what I hear is, you know, and, and my own personal experience is, wow, um, yeah. being able to have experiences on that, it, it heightens so much of your tactile somatic experience that, yeah, it makes sense that people would be playing and exploring these yeah. substances and the possibilities that you can do with these substances. I mean, there's obviously, you know, when you're stepping into that altered state of consciousness, then there's a di- additional factors about, you know, consent and risk and what does that look like, right? So Mm -hmm. I've been able to have really great conversations with other um, activists and sex educators like Britta Love on like what does consent look like in a framework where drugs are being used, right? And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's so much tied up in there. And I think that a lot of people – it makes sense, right? If you are a trauma survivor – of, you know, capital T trauma or the trauma survivor of living in this capitalistic hellscape at times um, (laughs) where we're – and puritanical, right? Where we're frequently pulled away from our body, pulled away from our pleasure. It makes sense that having these experiences on psychedelics that heighten your somatic response, you know, like MDMA, like these other substances, to be able to have that then becomes that template of what is possible in the body, right? But but obviously this is all it's like it's so scary when you talk about psychedelics to just like put these things out there because again the set and setting is huge. You can be yeah. having a, you know, a stressful day, going to your psychedelics, and it's going to amplify that. It's not like you just yeah. have these substances and get to like pick necessarily what happens. You have to be thinking about the set and setting that are going into the context. So 
yeah, some people are having really great experiences on psychedelics in terms of sex and intimacy. And other people are having really difficult experiences. And again, being able yeah. to have a therapist where you could integrate that without judgment and support is is so, so needed. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting. And I, I, I one of the questions I have, and um, I won't lie, it's coming partially from my own personal experience, sure. sexual assault. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I when I think about my my own experience and conversations I've had with other survivors, it's there's such a relationship or you know counterintuitive relationship with bodily autonomy, obviously mm-hmm. of of a sense of control and mm-hmm. how for folks who are seeking to heal from capital T trauma, uh, and, and we'll say in this case, how do you, uh, as a as a therapist, as a, as a support system, think through supporting kind of the reconciliation between an altered state of consciousness and not experiencing a lack of control that maybe people are, are scared of kind of in lieu of, of capital yeah. T trauma? Of course, of course. Yeah. You know, it's important to start off gentle, right? When mm-hmm. we are having these psychedelic experiences with clients, we talk about a handshake. You start with a handshake because you are establishing a relationship with the medicine with the drug. And so, mm-hmm. no, you don't come in taking that super high dose. You know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> you start off with that gentle handshake so that mm-hmm. you and your body can feel comfortable to let go, you know, and have that experience. What's wild is is you can have, you know, psilocybin, you can have that 10 gram heroic dose, wild high dose experience and be walking the streets of a city. You can totally do that because your your brain can control and try to stop the drug. You know, I, a lot of people talk about being high and being able to control that experience, right? Mm-hmm. And you can have such a radical, intense experience at one gram. It's all a question of are you able to let go, right? And let the mm-hmm. medicine have that experience. You know, internal family systems would talk about like manager parts or, or these other parts of our psyche. But you just – like you said, trauma survivors, right? That state of letting go can be really, really scary. So again, you start with that low, low dose so that you feel comfortable, your body feels comfortable, and then you can continue to like, you know, inch and step and explore a little bit more and more in a space Mm -hmm. that doesn't cause your somatic, you know, your nervous system to become so dysregulated that you go back into that fear response, you know? So it's really that starting small. But even then, people do have those experiences, right, where you start small, you feel it, it's intense, and that's when we start to talk about tuning into your somatic experience, right? Mm. If you can lean into what you're feeling on the psychedelic instead of trying to fight it, that's how people get into you know problems with panic attacks, right, is yeah. you start to feel that dysregulation in the breath, and then all of a sudden you're like, what's happening? Oh my God. Oh no. And then it snowballs into a, a deeper experience versus being able to you know take that moment of okay, I'm feeling this tightness in my breath. I'm feeling this, you know, queasiness in my stomach and trying to lean into that. That allows you to come out of the, you know, fear response in the brain and back to the body. And so that's also a lot of what we're doing if clients, you know, go into the medicine, start to have a little bit of that panic response, you know, like where are you feeling it? Do you need to push a pillow? Do you need to stand up and shake your body? You know, like listening to what's in the body without even needing to go into that cognitive space is actually frequently a lot of what we're doing in trauma work is like, can you stay connected to the body first? Hmm. Yeah. It it seems like it's so important. I mean, of course it, it depends and I wouldn't discourage someone from experimenting 
uh, on their own. And as long as, like you said, the the setting and scene and um, sort of safety mm-hmm. precautions are there, right? But like, it it seems like for folks who struggle with some of that more than others, having a guide, having a, a therapist present to like mitigate some of the risks, like a guide through through the process. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I, I deeply believe that community is medicine in mm. multiple ways. Yeah. And I could, I could spend my lifetime – I will spend my lifetime explaining that and talking about that <laughs> and the joys of that. But um, in terms of, yeah, going into psychedelic experiences, it is deeply, deeply helpful. It is very helpful to have someone who can help ground you because – Frequently in those experiences, it can feel like you can't touch back into reality. And so, yeah. you know, that's that's also part of why in our work, you know, it's a little bit different than talk therapy. Obviously, there's somatic therapists that do more touch too. But part of what we do in our work is checking in with our clients of, hey, this experience, you might feel, you know, a sense of ego death. It might feel like you can't mm. touch back into reality in those moments, how would you feel about a hand being held or offered to you? And we ask them those questions before they're in the altered state of consciousness because consent, right? Um, And so being able to have – yeah, you know, if you're exploring this, being able to have someone that could hold your hand when you're going through that can be so grounding. Someone that can slow down and help you to breathe and connect back to your body can be so grounding. So Absolutely. When I had that breath orgasm by myself, that was not the first time I had done psychedelics, right? I had had multiple experiences with community. And I would still say even, yeah, community is beneficial in all all states of um, exploration with these things. So yes, I deeply agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love love how you phrase that. And I think community um, is everything. It's so easy, easy, regardless of, you know, lowercase T or capital T trauma to, I think, self-isolate, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, we all lived through a global trauma in 2020, right? To be required to isolate mm-hmm. for your own physical safety and the safety of others and how you, um, you know, some of it is self-ownership and self-accountability and that can be really exhausting, but having to maintain at least some form of community because um or hopefully having a pre-established community that supports you regardless of any withdrawal or self-isolation all of those things are so important in order to stay i think connected with yourself and the world around you oh yeah absolutely i mean as a psychologist in training i'm always talking about how our identity our sense of self is created Mm -hmm by relationships. And there's no way to get out of that situation, whether you withdraw or not. We have internalized those relationships into our psyche. You know that you are the child of this person or you are the blank relation to this person. And and that includes your relationship to God, if that's someone in your world, right? Mm -hmm. Your relationship to nature, all these other things. Like we are always actively in relationship with other people. And so that is 100% a huge part of what I'm talking about on my podcast all the time and yeah. what I'm talking about in my therapy work because, you know, you'll, you'll get clients with these, these like very negative self-concepts like I am a failure, mm-hmm. I'm this and I'm that. And I'm always asking them like, who told you that? Yeah. And sometimes people don't necessarily have an immediate like, oh, my mom or my aunt or something. Sometimes it's society. Like society has told me that I am wrong or that I am bad. And that has certainly been my own journey with sex, right? Of coming from that Christian worldview where like, 
quite literally everything I did after stepping out of that, I felt like such a whore and a slut, which I have certainly reclaimed these days to be very, very, (laughs) very proud of my divine sluthood. However, (laughs) there were lots of tears and lots of shame. And, you know, I I still, I still feel that even now as like a psychologist in training, I'm applying to internship and my podcast is out there where I talk about kink and all these other things. I'm like, dear God, I hope those dinosaurs at the hospitals let me in to train there for a year. (laughs) Shit. You know? So it's still there. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I you probably noticed don't associate my face with my podcast. Mm. It's because unfortunately I'm for America because girlie's gotta pay her bills and you know how it is. Yeah. And so yeah, there's a fear, right? Of, you know, the the fine line between being yourself and certainly I too have reclaimed I love divine sluthood I don't know if you have that if you don't have that on a t-shirt Nicole, I'm telling you, you should absolutely wear a poster a tote bag would love it. but um but it is um yeah it's it's a we live in a in a, in a society that dictates yeah. so much of our self-perception whether or not you have mm-hmm. a single person telling you what you are and aren't worthy of mm-hmm. um but yes. one of the things that you mentioned um, earlier, and I think mm-hmm. I assume this ties to community, of course, is um, your non-monogamy. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. And let's go there. <laughs> yeah, and I know it's you know maybe a jump from professional to personal, but oh, I would. It's all I mean, there. It's all connected. It's all. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't not. I'm a non-monogamous therapist. It's the way yeah. I see the world. It's impossible mm. to pull me out of that. I obviously work with monogamous clients and and you know support everybody, but it's 100% how I see the world. And so yeah. it's it the personal is political, therapy is political. So yeah, it's all connected. Go for it. Let's go. I, I love it. Okay. So, I have listeners, uh, I have done other episodes on ethical non-monogamy. I've talked to folks who are poly, I've talk, talked to folks who identify as open. I've talked about cuckolding. We've gone there. But um, if you don't know what non-monogamy is, um, of course, as I mentioned, there are a ton of different forms that this can take. But ethical non-monogamy, ENM, non-monogamy, it's all discussing or addressing, right, you know, a relationship dynamic that includes multiple people sort of at a baseline, right? So, of course, there's hierarchical Um, polyamory I've talked about where maybe you have a spouse that's sort of at the top of your quote-unquote hierarchy and then you have other partners that take different roles in your life sometimes it's like a the terms for it are my favorite like kitchen table versus garden party Mm -hmm. like would everyone sit at a kitchen table would you rather just have people only meet and hang out at birthdays their non-monogamy takes so many different forms um, you can kind of check other resources. Um, we don't have to go into all of them right this very minute. But Nicole, I'd love to hear um, a little bit about your non-monogamy journey and kind of what yeah. forms it's taken for you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dissertation research has been on relationship anarchy. So I just completed my interviews with people and I'm analyzing the data and have to write that up in Ooh. the spring. So uh, yeah, so it's definitely, um, you know, I'm doing the clinical work in psychedelics, but yeah. my actual dissertation research is in relationship anarchy, which, yeah, if your listeners are new to non-monogamy, relationship anarchy is, you know, it's it's viewed as almost like the extreme 
in some ways and it sometimes has a very negative rep. Uh, we're trying to reclaim that and rewrite that. Um, mm-hmm. But it talks about acknowledging the ways that hierarchy is inevitable, right? But how are you doing it? Is it prescriptive? Are you following what we call the relationship escalator, aka you date one person, you get married, you live together, you have kids, you, you know, aka the relationship escalator? Or are you doing descriptive hierarchy where you are creating that hierarchy and deciding what that looks like for you in all of your relationships, whether they're platonic, sexual, romantic, and however we even choose to define those things. Because, you know, the more I get into this, the more those things look murkier and murkier, which I love because I think that's love and community. But in general, like trying to get more creative about how we actually do relationships rather than the relationship escalator, things like Mm. the relationship smorgasbord, right? Like getting more expansive, you know, one of my podcast guests had talked about it as if like, you know, you, we grow up in this world where you have the Lego set and it has the manual, you know, the Mm -hmm. manual. But what if you (laughs) built your own world and stopped listening to the manual? Because the reality is the manual doesn't work for everybody. And that's definitely my take on it. It didn't work for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are many people in relationships who are struggling with long-term desire and things like incompatible libido. I the fact that we live in a world where people are in relationships where if there's a mismatch in desire, you are presumed to have to meet your partner there regardless of your own desires sounds very much so like rape culture to me, that you are having yeah. to put your body and give it to that person. Obviously, people can do that with their own joy and, su- and support and stuff, but like this world where we feel like we have to meet our the sexual needs of our partner – It's – I don't know how I feel about that. So I I love that like my partner has desires that I don't have. They have sexual desires I do not have. And I am not forced in any way to meet those needs for them. I say, hey, that sounds like a great thing for your other partner. Cool. Have fun. (laughs) But um, that's that's part – and yeah, I mean, and kind of what I was talking about earlier, right, about like how our identity is shaped through all these relationships. Your identity is shaped through all the people in your life that you come into contact to. And in my clinical opinion, our sexual identity is no different, right? We have – um, a relationship even with porn that you're watching. This is a little mm-hmm. bit more abstract and heady, but think about it. Like something like a movie or porn, like that's someone's directive, art directive, that they created the story for you to show. You are listening to that story when you watch it, when you take that in, yeah. and it gets integrated into your psyche. So all these different ways that we have relationships with multiple people, whether it be real people, their thoughts, their art, you know, or actual multiple partners, right? And my identity is shaped through all of my different sexual partners. And and frequently I found I find that the types of sex I enjoy having are different depending on someone's yeah. identity, depending on how we connect. Like the ways that I interact with men is different than how I interact with women or my non-binary partners and all these other identity pieces. And so I I love my life right now and it is so good. And I wish that I could have explained that to myself many years ago when I was 
flirting with multiple people at once and thinking that I had to pick one. And yeah. I did. And I would do that. And then like I would be in these relationships for long periods of time. And then like the libido would would dry up and I would just, you know, be like, what's wrong with me? Why am yeah. I struggling? And then realizing that there was another world and maybe the problem isn't with me, but rather the structure that I thought I had to live in. And so having that process was has been radical and I'm, I'm so happy to be where I'm at today. But like also the reality is that when I first was told or met someone who was non-monogamous and they wanted to do that with me, I was like, if you love me, it would be just me. I would satisfy right. everything. And so I was obviously completely against it at the beginning and then like – even the continual process of like establishing relationships, having my partner have other partners in a non-hierarchical mm -hmm. way and all that sort of stuff. Like there have been many days of tears, many mm -hmm. days of being afraid. And I think for me, I'm also a rock climber and that's 100% how, you know, I, I look at a lot of this, you know, like rock climbing was so, so scary to start out with. That first time that I went up and had to jump off of that wall, I was terrified. Yeah. I was literally shaking. And through the practice of being with my body and doing it repeatedly, I've learned and have expanded in that way to be able to enjoy the sport in ways that I couldn't have even imagined when I first started, right? And yeah. non-monogamy feels very different to me. It is this continual practice of connecting to my body. What is coming up for me when my partner tells me about their play with another? It might make my stomach churn at first or bring up this immediate fear response and being able to name that in the relationship with the person, continue to connect and grow and evolve through that. It has been one hell of a psychedelic experience, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> and so I'm just so I'm so passionate about being able to help other people. You know, non-monogamy is not for everybody. Not everyone has to rock climb, right? But there are many people who want to and then go into the space of like, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do it. And I look at it the same way I do someone who would come in and say, I want to rock climb. I don't know if I can get up that wall. I'm scared of heights. You know, yeah. gentle exposure therapy. We can do this. I know yeah. you can do this. You might cry at first, but that's okay. And that's part of the process. And I promise you that you'll be enjoying it at some point, right? And so yeah. for me, that's a lot of what my non-monogamy journey has looked like, you know, connecting and healing and, and finding my identity shared across multiple relationships and just a continual process of deeper connection to myself and, and, and what it means to love another human. Mm. Like what does it mean to love my partner and be happy for them that they're exploring all possibilities of what that means in their lifetime. Like I, I, I tell my partners, like, I want to get to the end of our life, you know, 90 if we're lucky, whatever that age is, and look at each other and say, we did it all. Like we really mm -hmm. experienced it all. Every sort of joy we thought possible, we supported one another in. And so sexual expansion and being able to explore is definitely something that I want and something that mm -hmm. I – hope to give to all of my partners that I connect with in this lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think you've, you've touched on so many things that are important for folks who maybe don't understand non-monogamy and, and, and it's fine. You know, I think like many things, you don't have to relate to an experience that, that doesn't speak to you or doesn't appeal to you. But um, I think it's so it's so beneficial to understand as as many experiences as we can in this world. One because I think it's important to try the ones on that we're curious about, right? In in safe um, environments with with people who have our best um, experiences at heart. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, it, it, it is so many things, right. You touched on, um, you know, a, a different sexual curiosities and, you know, wanting to explore a sexual fantasy perhaps, and that being mismatched or having mismatched libidos or sex drives. Right. But also just the fact that, and, and, anyone, non-monogamous, monogamous, whatever, has experienced the ability to love different people differently, right? Romantically, mm-hmm. platonically, sexually, right? And I think so much, uh, regardless of what your non-monogamy looks like, so much of the core is exploring versions of love, whatever that may be, physical, emotional, spiritual, however you define it, mm-hmm. um, and being excited for the people you love to have those different types of love experiences too. And there's something really magical in that. But it, it isn't easy. I've talked to enough non-monogamous people. I've obviously experienced it a little bit. It, I got to say, it didn't work out for me. I, mm. I, was, <laughs> I wasn't in a place where I could sit down and process what I was experiencing in a healthy way. And it turned sure. to a lot for, for all parties involved. Mm. Chaos that yeah. inevitably just had to stop, right? But, mm. but I, think it's, I think it's beautiful. And when you, when you put the work in, because it does require work, oh, yeah. as anything does, it, mm-hmm. it can be really magical for everyone. Mm-hmm. I feel like magical is a corny word maybe, but I mean it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, relationships are transformative, right? And and that's mm. that's all relationships in your sexual, platonic, romantic or not. Like we are always growing in relationships. I'm a deeply relational therapist. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> but yeah, we are always growing in relationships. And so yeah. monogamy or not, like you, we have these deeply spiritual experiences, these transformative experiences with one another where we are expanding, where we're learning. It, it's constant, that change, right? I'm also very Buddhist leaning. So I'm always talking mm-hmm. about how the only constant we have is change. And so yeah. relationships, whatever structure you're doing it, you're growing, you're learning you're evolving and there's so much like you said magic right spirituality yeah. transformation evolution in that and so yes absolutely yeah what are if you're comfortable sharing what are like a couple of mistakes you feel like maybe you made as you were trying <laughs> the face the face nicole just made um <laughs> again how learning. much time do we have <laughs> You know, some key learnings that you think folks who are maybe curious about non-monogamy or, you know, how how would you recommend people kind of go about exploring this based on mm. some, some mistakes that you've made? Some key yeah. Learnings? yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely learned that non-monogamy is, is, is a choice, right, of a life path that is very different than monogamy in many ways. And so – if you are feeling that calling to explore non-monogamy and your partner is not, you're at a difficult crossroads and you're going to have mm-hmm. to make that choice. You know, I've, I've had quite literally, I have clients in this crossroads of do I stay in this relationship and try and open it or do that? Or do I leave and, and go and explore it? Or do I cut this off and I, and I never explore it? Right. And, mm-hmm. and I support my clients through whatever choice, because I believe in their inner healing wisdom and their yeah. innate sense to know which way they, they're going to go. I'm not over here telling them what to do, you know, and any therapist yeah. who does, I would question. Yeah. Red flag for sure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you have to make that choice. And, and, and for me, I look at it a lot like, having kids, right? Like not everyone wants to have kids, but if you connect Mm -hmm. with someone who really wants to have that life path and you don't, you're going to have to make a decision there, right? And you can't Mm -hmm. try to force that person 
into that lifestyle. And if you do, and then you're in a don't ask, don't tell situation, that doesn't work very well. (laughs) Let me tell you, because there's a lot of shame then, because you're like, oh God, am I hurting them? They can't hear this. Oh my God, what is happening? What is happening? Oh my God. And like, what happens if you live together and you're in a don't ask, don't tell? Like, how do you fathom even the world of like, oh, I'm going to be busy on Tuesday and I can't tell you where or why. Like, that is one of the things, like a don't ask, don't tell is, I haven't seen it worked out in any positive state. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that like it's it's really a difficult choice if you're in a relationship where the other partner is not wanting to embark on it. And there's no right or wrong choice in that, right? Like I'm also – a lot of my therapy perspectives are very existential and so I'm always pulling in an existential lens as well. Like reality is we live in this existential void and we're always making choices that have consequences and benefits, right? And so Mm -hmm. choosing the path of non-monogamy is certainly one. And if you don't choose that, you're going to experience a beautiful life in another way, but it's going to be different, right? And so being able to sit in that discomfort of our freedom, the discomfort Mm. of having so many choices, that's where a lot of people get stuck, right? Like, where do I go? And and again, there's no right or wrong answer, but the journey will be beautiful regardless of which way you go. And, And that you can also change your mind, right? Like you were saying, like you explored it and it wasn't for you and you're able to take the lessons from that and then take those into the new relationships moving forward. And and so holding that space for yourself and, and for the ability for relationships to evolve over time, I think is a really big piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for for my situation, I, tru- I truly just got lucky that the partner I ended up with and, and share my life with is um, – we very intuitively intuitively meet each other where we are and as yeah it is yeah it truly is and I think that's part of why I've never had to think about exploring non-monogamy again because I I my needs are met my partner's Mm -hmm. needs are met and we got lucky right that's not the case not the case for a monogamous relationship and one of the things that I I talk about and I, I speak to this because there are a lot of um, you know, especially cis women, cis queer women that I talk to who really struggle with being um, like straight passing basically mm. in a, a heteronormative relationship. How do I honor my queerness? Mm. How to explore my queerness? And I'm in a relationship where I'm I'm a cis woman, cis queer woman in, in a straight relationship and my queerness is honored by my partner who's mm-hmm. a cis man. And my, my queerness is I have room to explore it in different ways. And that grants me some of the exploration that I would not get from a lot of straights as partners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm lucky. But that's, you know, for folks who are in situations where, um, you know, they're in a monogamous relationship and, and some of the exploration, some of, like, the, yes, the sexual exploration or the sexual matching or um, the exploration of, of relationships, but also the, the self-exploration, right? The mm-hmm. This part of my identity is important to me. Mm-hmm. I, there are elements of that, you know, my sexuality, my gender even that I need to explore and what that yeah. looks like in different dynamics. And there has to be space made for that too. And sometimes non-monogamy is the best option for those things. And sometimes it's not. And it, there's a lot of soul searching that has to be done to figure out what has to be explored for you to feel wholly yourself. Like we've mm-hmm. got one life to live and I agree with you it will be beautiful regardless of the choices we make as long as we're following some part of our heart right but you have to be you have to make space to be wholly you while you do it too I think 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was definitely like my process. I, For me, it was hard to imagine a world where I would only have access to one type of partner. That was hard yeah. for me. Like I, um, another activist had talked about it, like feeling like a bird with its wings clipped, right? Again, mm. if your needs are me- met in it, like I am so yeah. happy for you. For me, like I couldn't totally. fathom. And <laughs> I, because <laughs> there's just, it might, the sex that I have with women, with other yeah. people of different genders is just so different. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I needed to have access to that whole world of possibility, which it's like as I'm saying it, I'm also like sitting in the larger historical context of fighting for queer liberation and how there yeah. was so much like, oh, the the bisexuals, you know, I'm queer. I don't use that word, but like the bisexuals yeah, yeah. can't make up their mind. And so <laughs> they're rah, you know, and it's just yeah, like yeah. here I am being like, I want both. I want all of it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I know that historical context and and fighting for marriage equality and all that we've done to get to that space and and I guess yeah I I, I personally I, I want it all I want my cake yeah. and I'm gonna eat it too and I am I'm eating it now and it feels really 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 good <laughs> <laughs> honestly I mean power too and that's the thing is it's like we should get to have our cake and eat it too mm-hmm. like there are avenues for that for a reason and Again, that's the thing is like I I feel whole, like wholeheartedly the same way, and yes, obviously you yeah. and I ended up in different in different yes. choices, yes. and like both both are worthy, and we're both exploring, and like that's the beauty of it, right? You can you can be come from similar places and end up in completely mm-hmm. different points, and it's all worthy and beautiful and magical as long as you're honoring yourself, right? Absolutely, that's the biggest piece, right? Like what dear listener, you know, like yeah. <laughs> what, what, that's how I refer, reference always to my listener base. Um, yeah. Like what is the sex that's most pleasurable to you? Like what is a fantasy that you're excited about? And if you don't have answers to that, like take the time to start thinking, start dreaming, start exploring what it is that gets you excited. You know, like there's yeah. so much pleasure and play. Oh, when I'm working with sex clients, it's always like, how did you play as a child? When did you lose that connection to that play? And how can we bring that back into the bedroom, into the dungeon, into the nature, wherever you're playing with your peoples, right? Like, Like how can we bring back that space of play that frequently, again, living in the society that we do is often so disconnected and and, and how can we get back into the body? That's where I also teach yoga um, and that's a huge part of my identity as well is also being able to be in that space. And it's like so many people – you know, Instagram or whatever, social media, TikTok, you know, like it's constant stimulus of the brain, 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 brain. And then our neurological pathways are getting wired into such a space where that's the kind of stimulus we need. And it's so disconnected to the body. And so like part of the question of pleasure and play too is like, how long can you sit in your body and just feel? Like if I invited you to just take a moment and sit down and just ask you to connect with your breath and to feel that in your body, how long would you be able to do that without feeling uncomfortable? And it's just mm-hmm. like the, the it's such a direct correlation when you're trying to have pleasure sexually with your play, right? Like how long can you be in your body and the sensations in your body without letting those thoughts just start to run? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm so passionate about this because at the other side of this, I think, is revolution. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do believe in a world where more people are having more pleasure and more connection to their body. I think you start to get more in tune to the the experiences that are going on in the world is you start to open up your heart more and feel more and then you start to get a little bit more riled up about these systems going on, you know, and yeah, and, and banding together to change that world is 100% what I'm passionate about. I love it. And I think you – one of the, the phrases you used when we were, were messaging kind of in prep for the podcast mm-hmm. is uh, deeper embodiment. And I feel like you – to me at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if you, you know, define it differently, but I think it ties to, yes, like the, the true deep experience in your physical form, but also the mindfulness, right, that comes with something like yoga, like taking the time to be absolutely present in your physical form mm-hmm. without having to doom scroll into oblivion because we all are guilty of that at some point or another, right? Totally. Um, and that can be helpful. I, too, right? Yeah. Like if we need a little break and you just want to be able to like tune out for a moment, like that's also therapeutic in and of itself too, right? Like that's yeah. okay. Yeah. I it's it's I think I I don't teach yoga, but I do yoga and I practice like mindfulness walks mm-hmm. and and yeah. obviously all all you can tell I have a therapist, but um <laughs> but all those things tied to my sexual being, who I am as a sexual entity, like the the tools that I practice. Um to be mindful in a mental health and day-to-day mm-hmm. way, get pulled into the bedroom, right? We all struggle to be present in the right situations. And mm-hmm. it's so important to practice that in any context. So that way you can use it as a tool in sexual pleasure and play, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a tricky one. We don't live in a society that, that, that promotes it in any way or form unless you seek out the right community or the right resource or the right guide, right? Yeah. And especially if, depending on your intersecting identities and that factor mm-hmm. too, right? Like there's different cultural images, stereotypes, expectations. And, you know, I identify as a woman and as a woman, as a feminist, there's like a long history of of women's voice. You know, if you go back to even older films and hearing how women speak so daintily, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Compared <laughs> to like, how am I going to show up in the room as the dominatrix and tell you to get down on your knees, right? Like, right. how do you get that level of voice when the society and the cultural images that you've seen have been this oh, I'm a dainty woman and, and yeah, I don't have any opinions and it's okay, right? Like there are pieces yeah. to this too of the larger cultural context that are affecting us. And it's not, you know, I, I talk about pointing the, arrow, pointing the arrow at the systems, right? Like that yeah. is not always a reflection of myself. It's my job to in community heal and to grow through that. But the world where I was taught to be this demure, little, soft woman Mm -mm, that is not me, you know? And so like getting people to expand and realize that like even things, you know, like there's theorists that talk about breath and how women's breath is usually restricted. And so being able to get into a space where I can scream and kink, right? And like have that full cathartic release of letting that sound out of my body. I mean, that's transformative when we think about the larger cultural context that have really restricted women's breath because of yeah. the images of what it means to be a woman. And so there's just so much tied up in here. I'm always wanting to see like women get more furious in the bedroom. Like where is mm-hmm. that energy? Have you tapped into the that? Oof, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are you are speaking <laughs> to so many things. And honestly, like I hadn't thought about this specifically, but I when I think back to like my early – 
sexual exp- experiences, um, I was so quiet. Mm. And as I, as I, you know, grew in age, but also in open mindedness, and and I was always kinky, right? I mean, like as a teenager, like you know, but but there are certain things that you bury, right? That you're like, mm. okay, well. That was a weird thought my brain had, yeah. you know, not allowed to have that weird thought, yeah. penis and vagina only. So yeah. let me, so let me, let me not think about that. But, but the more I got comfortable exploring queerness, exploring kink and fetish and different communities and different languages, the more confidence I get. And part of that too, to your point, when we think about submission in the bedroom and and you know it's a completely valid identity to identify as a submissive obviously and, mm-hmm. and identify as a woman too there, there's nothing wrong with that but certainly for me I have been I, I mean I've just had so much fun being both a dom and a sub because it's the opportunity to reclaim the role that I've been taught I have to mm-hmm. fill I mean sure I can be a loud sub though which is great but mm-hmm. also also getting to experience the other side of it and and being loud it's such a good point and it's not something that i've ever even really connected to the way that i think about my role based on my gender expression and presentation and identity but i am you know what i am loud and i get to be yeah hell yes you are (laughs) so so much of of what you've talked about we've kind of uh, talked about revolution and um, you've used the phrase relationship anarchy. And of course, your podcast is called Modern Anarchy. Yeah. And there's a common thread here. Um, I'd love to I'd love to have you just define for my listeners who don't know, you know, your podcast and are new to you and your work, like what does modern anarchy mean? Woo, what a great question. <laughs> it's a good question too. <laughs> Well, I think – well, let me be a theoretical heady artist up in here and be like, well, ha, ha, ha. Technically, it's always ever-evolving, right? Because each guest that comes onto the show, I hand over the power to them and I ask them, who do you want to nominate onto the show? And so mm. the show in and of itself has been this thread of like a very grassroots social movement of – hey, this person would be great. This person would be great. So I've been talking to people that I would have never in a million years found, you know, on my own and through these networks of people and radical artists and queers and theorists and sex workers and all these amazing people. And so part of, you know, the actual ethos of the show was let's create the space where we do have this ever-evolving definition of what it means to be a conscious objector to the status quo. And so Mm -hmm. it is always evolving, always changing. Now, for me, when I think about anarchy, I'm thinking about what it means to examine power structures, right? And then as a psychologist in training, I'm also thinking about, you know, from a relational standpoint, the ways that our relationships to other people, to society, to spirituality, to ecology, all these other things get internalized, right? We think about something like the work of Michael Foucault and the way that we internalize power structures to self-police, right? Like all these other ways. And so I'm personally interested in the ways that power has been internalized that is affecting our ability to enjoy pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. To enjoy sex, to enjoy relationships, all of the kinds, and our liberation truly. And so I'm trying to examine power and how that is present in the ways that 
like we just were talking about, like right breath, mm-hmm. how power of that cultural image of womanhood is impacting my ability to scream in my pleasure. And that's something that I didn't see going on in the psychology conversations, right? And and as a feminist and as someone who's taking that into their relational context with therapy work, I was trained in the a feminist perspective to psychotherapy. And so I was reading the stuff on that and and they started to say at some point that the leaders of the movement there got too nervous and shameful to talk about mm. sex. And so I was just like, here we go. Let's take yeah. up this large project <laughs> of examining what that means. And so that's a lot of what I'm doing. And 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 for me too, it's also um the the therapy work that I do with complex trauma is so heavy. It mm. is so so, so heavy. And when I am in the therapy room and I'm just seeing the breath of pain that is existing in this world and the breath of trauma, I frequently feel like I am not actually doing anything. I am putting just a drop of fire on rape culture and these larger systems. And so Mm -hmm. for me, honestly, my podcast has become this sort of space where I can feel like I'm making this larger difference. Like I'm having these conversations on a larger scale because it's, it's gone global and that's really exciting. And to see it's like, yeah, like soaring in the charts. And so like, for me, it is also a hundred percent part of my self-care, like truly, because the work is just so heavy at times that to be able to, you know, work with trauma survivors of sexual assault in the therapy room and then have this podcast where I'm talking about kink and owning your story and being able to reclaim and have that sort of experience. Like I'm, I'm getting to have that whole continuum, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. trauma immediacy and the pleasure activism on the other side. And so for me, like it is such a part of my self-care of how I, how I do this work and how I plan to take listeners on a long, long journey of however long I get to be on this earth and taking yeah. them for the journey of what it means to embody our pleasure. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I love that you are constantly evolving yeah. through the narrative of others. And and I think for me too, so much of, of podcasting is being um, almost beholden to what others are willing to share and what we can learn mm-hmm. as a collective towards hopefully a greater good. But, um, you know, you can tell by my podcast name, there's some existential, there's some existential viewpoint in the way that I see the world as well. And the way that I think about, about sex as well. But, um, Nicole, I, I feel like you've given so much, we've covered so many different elements of, of your life and your work. And, um, I just want to thank you so much for taking Mm -hmm. the time and sharing that with me and and with my listeners. And, um, for those of you who uh, didn't know Nicole before, um, you know, connecting uh, with us here today. Uh, I encourage you to listen to the Modern Anarchy podcast everywhere where you can listen to podcasts. Is that correct? Yes, that's <laughs> correct. <laughs> and you can follow Nicole um, at Modern Anarchy Podcast on Instagram as well. Nicole, do you have anything else you want to share with the Sex Essentialist mm-hmm. listeners? Any other resources, words of wisdom? Mm. take a deep breath and keep exploring your pleasure wherever that takes you follow that voice that is speaking to you and guiding you because it knows the way yeah wow 
I really needed to hear that. Mm, mm. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the space and and holding the container for me to share my story and to talk about what I'm so passionate about. It, it's really a pleasure anytime I get to have a conversation like this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Nicole. And, and thank you, listeners. And we'll be back.